Hello. Um, yes, so uh, uh, maybe the first thing, actually, I was going to get you to introduce yourselves and say what relation you have to this topic, but maybe I should explain who I am first. Um, I worked in the now-called IT services, used to be called the computing services over there, for 10 years now, starting off working at the Oxford Text Archive, which was uh, Lou Bernard started, which was a way of collecting uh, little bits of research that people had done, little bits of digitization dating all the way back to the 70s. Um, but at a certain point, uh, 2003 it was, our funders, the GISC, asked us to run a service about free and open source software um, because they were getting criticized quite heavily for spending money to create software and then it just disappearing and not being available for people. So we started running that, I think, called Oswatch back then, and it's been going for 10 years this year. Uh, and uh, as a 10th anniversary present, they're going to stop funding us. So from the end of this summer, um, we are, we're kind of on our own. I mean, we're going to continue to exist, but we have to, uh, what's that phrase, diversify our funding model, um, which means we're panicking at the moment. But um, what we did then, really, was talk to people about those forms of open licensing, specifically related to software, um, as the years went on, uh, with things like the Cape Town Declaration, open educational resources became something that people were really interested in. And because I had some vague experience with Creative Commons, which is a kind of, uh, well, we'll talk about more about that later, but it's like open source software licensing, um, I ended up working on the Open Spires project here, which was a project to take the podcasts that we put on iTunes U and make as many of them as possible available under licenses that let people redistribute them and cut them up and alter them uh, if they wanted to do so using Creative Commons licenses. Um, and more recently, we've had projects related to linked open data and obviously we're all getting pressured these days to make data sets available that are funded along with research. So um, part of our continuity plan as Oswatch and as people who talk about Creative Commons is that we're going to try and link all these things together within Oxford and in something called Open Oxford and get all the people who are interested in the libraries and in various other places in open licensing to talk to each other and uh, try and produce something useful and have some sort of single view on these things. Um, so that's who I am and why I vaguely know about these things. I'm not a lawyer. Um, my wife is a lawyer who works at the university, which is why I was originally picked within our team to talk about these things because I would have a quick route of finding out whether we were talking rubbish or not <laughs> over the dinner table. Um, but in practice, what you discover when you ask people about these, particularly lawyers about these forms of licensing, is that because often there isn't a view that there is uh, a large amount of uh, commercial potential behind this material, and I would argue that's not necessarily true, um, commercial lawyers don't often have that much of a clue about how this sort of licensing works, particularly in the software area. So often you are better off asking somebody who is a specialist but not necessarily a lawyer on these issues. Of course, this is me promoting my own value and skill here, but... You know, it is a hot Friday afternoon. I need to do something to keep you in the room. Okay, so my slides um, start with a very uh, rough description of what intellectual property is and some stuff to do with openness. Uh, at the end of them, and you'll get all of these as part of the materials, um, there is a much more in-depth description of copyright and so on, some of which will go to the questions you've been asking. So I propose to go through some of the initial slides, and after that, maybe we'll see where we want to go from there, um, if that's okay. So... Um, this is, a, if you were at my talk earlier in the week, it was about what we mean by the word open and um, the extent to which the fact that we use the word open to designate lots of different, subtly different things is undermining to all of those separate uses and, and indeed had the effect, I think, in the case of our funding. Our funder was criticised for having too many open projects to do with open source, open standards, um, open access. Uh, publishers don't like the word because they feel it undermines their business model. Uh, so my talk earlier in the week was really 
designed to disambiguate some of these meanings and say we don't necessarily mean the same thing when we say open source as we do when we say open access or open innovation. Um, the Open Knowledge Foundation, uh, which is a UK not-for-profit, um, however, produced this definition, which is quite useful, so I thought I'd paste it in. Uh, it doesn't apply to all of those things I was talking about, but for our purposes of open content and open source software, it's pretty good. A piece of data or content is open if anyone is free to use, reuse, and redistribute it, subject only at most to the requirement to attribute or share alike, and we'll go into what share alike means uh, in a little while. Here, reuse um, explicitly, if you read the explanation, includes the right to adapt that material, to take excerpts of it, uh, to produce what in American legal terminology we call a derivative work, and call an adaptation here. So, um, so that's kind of a specialised meaning uh, of the word reuse. But that's, uh, that's what we mean by open in that particular cluster of software and content. And then when we talk about openness, it's often confused with open availability, and that was one of the original meanings of open when open access just meant you can get at it without having to have a login um, back in the early 2000s. What we're really talking about here, though, is licensing intellectual property in such a way as it facilitates those things that we just saw on the previous slide, reuse, reuse. Um, so what is intellectual property? This is another one of those things which comes up very frequently. Um, this comes from the Intellectual Property Office's website. Uh, every time I do these talks, I go there and see what they're saying, and they change what they say pretty much every single time. Generally, it gets shorter and shorter and less and less specific. used to be much longer, take up most of the slide. Now they just say this. Intellectual property results from the expression of an idea. So IP might be a brand, an invention, a design, a song, or another intellectual creation. IP can be owned, bought, and sold. Um, so that doesn't really get us very far, does it? I mean, the, the question that comes up quite a lot is, is this exactly the same thing as physical property? If I have intellectual property, do I own it in the same sense as I own my car or my house? Um, it doesn't mean that. Uh, and indeed, uh, to gesture slightly towards the philosophical issues you were talking about earlier, there's a large school of people within what's called the free software movement who feel that the phrase intellectual property itself is a manufactured political phrase used to group together a lot of disparate timed rights and make people think of them as like physical property in an attempt to give them greater legitimacy so that you say, well, really these things are all really specific little rights we hand over to try and promote creativity, but they're not like property at all. They're just really a kind of a reward for having done something creative mostly that will um, you know, uh, time out eventually. All these things are time limited unlike standard property rights. And uh, yeah, I mean Richard, if any of you are here on Monday afternoon, Richard Stallman, uh, who's president of the Free Software Foundation, is speaking at Wolfson. Uh, he's one of the people who makes this argument very strongly. He is uh, almost a conspiracy nut. I think he's certainly very critical of establishments in general, and he believes that there really was a, a meeting somewhere where people sat down and said, we've got to start using the phrase intellectual property because we have to bake this idea that these rights are permanent and like property rights into people's minds. Um, and therefore don't use the phrase in front of him because he gets really angry. Um, and the other example is the Eiffel Tower. If you take a photograph of the Eiffel Tower at night, its arrangement of lights is a copyright work. Um, yes, and if you... Uh, I've tried to put up photographs before on... Yeah. So, so there are various different... Um, Awkward situations like that. So, um, what, do we, what do you get if you own intellectual property? Well, there are exclusive rights for the owner uh, um, of the intellectual property, and therefore you need a license from the owner in order to exercise those rights yourself. Um, and the restricted acts, the things that you can't do with the stuff, tend to centre around duplicating or adapting the material. 
Uh, and again, I've got more detailed stuff about this later if you want to go into it. So just to quickly go into what kinds of IP. Now, this is not by any means an exhaustive list of varieties. Of, why is James creeping towards me? Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, this is not an exhaustive list of varieties of IP. If anything, it's a list of varieties which I think might come up within the sort of materials you might be creating. Um, patents, not necessarily so much. Um, we need to make a distinction between rights that are registered and rights that are unregistered. Registered rights require you to go to some official body, make an application, have that application approved, and under those circumstances you then gain the right. Until you do that, you have no right. Um, patents would be an example of a registered right. So thinking of something which is inventive, I mean, let's just quickly go through here what it is. Uh, it's time limited, as we said earlier, as nearly all of these are, and it protects inventions. And in order to get a patent, you need to produce something that's new. There has to be an inventive step above and beyond what the current state of the art is. It needs to be something which isn't just an obvious uh, variation on a pre-existent invention. So it's like, well, we'll have that, but it'll be blue. That would be something that would be obvious. You need to think of something which qualifies as inventive and novel. Um, it has to be usable in industry, so that immediately sweeps out all forms of artistic work, which are solely artistic. And it can't be a list of various different things. Um, the political tendency over the years, though, has been for this list to get whittled away. Um, so, uh, medical treatments, for example, a, a method of medical treatment or diagnosis. There are plenty of methods of medical treatment and diagnosis which are patented these days. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, computer programs... Um, generally speaking, were exempt from being patented. Now, generally speaking, in the US and the UK, you can patent them. All basically through slow pressure on the patent-granting bodies from people who invest money in the creation of these kinds of, uh, kinds of work. Um, so, yeah, that's patents. Um, probably going to be more of interest to people who work in the science areas than uh, the humanities, but there you go. Copyright is probably going to be the core one for people who work within the humanities. It's an unregistered right here in the UK. Uh, in the US, there are two varieties of copyright. You, you gain a right automatically. So, sorry, when we say unregistered, that's obviously the converse of what we were talking about earlier. Your right comes into existence as soon as the material comes into existence. You don't need to go to anyone and say, here, I made this in order to gain that right. It just exists as soon as um, the material is fixed, exists in a form outside your brain, basically. Um, and it protects the form of the material that you put it in when you fix it. It's not the idea behind it. Um, the notion of a story about a school for wizards isn't protected, but the actual words of Harry Potter novels are protected by copyright. Um, you know that the notion isn't protected because the worst witch used that idea first, um, and nevertheless, J.K. Rowling got away with it. So, uh, however, in the US, there are two levels of copyright protection. You can register material and you gain additional rights, and it's easier to take action against people who infringe on your rights in the US if you do register your copyright. Um, here in the UK, you can kind of do it unofficially, basically um, by getting a lawyer or, or someone else to accredit the fact that you owned a copy of this material at a particular date, but it's not, uh, it's not by any means the same thing as you have in the States. Again, it's time limited. Generally, it's measured from the death of the person who created it, uh, 70 years here and in most places. And it covers literary, dramatic, musical, and artistic works. Um, this business about the originality requirement goes to the issue that came up a few times during the, the introductions earlier. Um, we, in the UK, really only require that you put a lot of hard work into something in order to gain protection. Um, whereas in the US, there's a stronger originality requirement. Uh, and that means that here, taking photographs of things within a museum's collection and making those photographs available, that's generally enough work for something to be protected as a copyright work in the UK. Uh, and generally, in the US, it's not. Uh, and this came up during a case between the Bridgman Art Library here and Corel, 
who produced Corel Draw and her old art program. It's still probably knocking around. But anyway, they used to include, like, they, their major way of selling it was to say, including 50 CD-ROMs of art, and they would just comb the web and everywhere else to stick in as much clip art as possible. And they took wholesale all of the stuff from the Bridgman Art Library and stuck it in there, basically saying, well, you know, this is all photographs of works that are clearly out of copyright because the, the creators have been dead for more than 70 years. Um, the, the Bridgman collection said, no, um, we put a lot of work into digitizing this stuff. There's a lot of work involved in just producing a digital image that looks like the original work. It's not nothing. You have to light it properly. You have to use the correct kind of uh, uh, sensors. Um, so we think that you should uh, grant us protection. Uh, and they lost, basically. They lost the case in the US. The US said, no, definitely within uh, US law you should lose. But we're also going to do a thought experiment here and try and work out what would happen if we, you did this in the UK. And we still think you'd lose. Um, so so that, that goes to that issue quite... So if you spend a lot of money preparing collections of out-of-copyright materials which exist physically by producing digital versions of them in this country, you're likely to have copyright protection under UK law much less likely to have copyright protection under US law, and that, obviously, given the global nature of the internet, is a problem. Um, so that's worth bearing in mind. There are other issues related to that, but, but that's basically what you need to think about when you're doing that, and, and when you're trying to work out whether it's worth spending money on creating these kind of digitized works. How far does your protection extend? Are you doing this because you want that to be out there as widely as possible? If you're not doing it for that reason, maybe you need to think carefully, because the fact is that your rights may not be enforceable in some areas of the world. Um, this one is perhaps of interest to humanities people as well. Um, basically, when people started creating large databases of you know, things in general, um, they weren't necessarily original works. Um, they weren't necessarily protected by copyright um, because it's possible that they are really just tiny elements. Each individual element within the database is too insubstantial. That's something we didn't say earlier, but Another thing that means you aren't protected by copyright is that you are insubstantial, that you're too small to be protected. And that generally means that titles aren't protected by copyright. Um, if you want to enforce rights over a title, you're better off thinking of it as a trademark. So Harry Potter is a trademark, and if I put that in the title of a novel, I will be infringing on trade. We'll talk about trademarks in a minute. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is not sufficiently long in itself to be protected by copyright. Um, so in a database, each one of your entries in the database may not be sufficiently... Uh, substantial to be protected, but there's work involved in the production of a database. Once you start putting those things on the web, people can systematically query them and rebuild the database on the other end. So um, you don't need access to it necessarily, you just need access to a querying interface. And this was happening quite a lot, and within the EU there was a lot of lobbying on the part of companies to say, we need some kind of right to say that's illegal. Uh, and they tried to lobby in the US too. Uh, they were successful in the EU and they weren't successful in the US. So here we have additional rights called database rights. They come into existence when you put a certain amount of um, sweat of the brow, essentially, into the creation of a database or a data set. Um, doesn't have to be original. Um, and it means that you can't do that kind of querying and reconstruction. Um, these are also time limited. They last for 15 years. And you can have a work which is both a copyright work. I mean, the example I usually give is of an anthology of poetry. An anthology of poetry can be a copyright work because each individual poem is a copyright work, but also the anthologizing of it, the, editor, edit, you know, the editing, the creation of the collection can be sufficient, a work of sufficient um, originality, skill and judgment to be protected in itself. And also you can think of an anthology as a kind of small database. It really is a small database of poems. So under those circumstances, you might have a database right over the collection, a copyright over the collection as a whole, as well as copyright in the, in the individual poems. 
Um, the problem with database rights is firstly, no one really knows how they work. They're relatively new. No one knows what they apply to. There have been lots of really ugly cases involving them. Um, they, they get a bad rep because they tend to be associated with things like the UK post office's attempt to stop people creating a postcode database which they don't control, which is just insane. Um, th there are various kind of um, difficult situations where the enforcement of these rights has, has gained them a bad reputation, the difficulty of enforcing them and you know, the circumstances in which they've been enforced. The other difficulty is for open licensing that in the US, if you have a data set, you can slap a Creative Commons license on it. Here, Creative Commons licenses thus far don't cover database rights, which means that for the purposes of a data set created in the EU, a Creative Commons license won't actually give you all the rights you need to do what you like with it or to do the things that the license appears to give you. So generally speaking, they're a bit of a problem and they need to be dealt with uh, when you are licensing something which could be construably a database in the EU. Uh, and then trademarks. Uh, these come up quite a lot, particularly um, these days, our funder, who stopped uh, funding us, as I say, but they do fund other projects and their new conditions as part of their new lean, um, commercially friendly um, face that they're presenting, um, as a result of all of us having obviously to uh, demonstrate our commercial value these days in these lean times, um, says that they want all trademarks that you generate as a result of an academic project. So if you come up with some whizzy name for your project and maybe you generate a bit of software or something as a result, um, there's kind of a thought that you ought to be thinking about getting a trademark to cover the name as well. Um, and sometimes academic projects do that anyway just because they want to. So trademarks protect brand names and marks, so ways of identifying products essentially. Um, this is one where in, in, in both the US and the UK there are two levels of rights. They come into being automatically when you start using it in the course of trade, but if you register it, it's easier to enforce it. Um, and if you register it also, it means that you can do things like getting uh, trading standards officials to go in and close people down. You can't do that if you just have the unregistered version of the right. Uh, basically, with the unregistered version of the right, you have a common law passing off um, possibility. You can basically say, you're pretending to be me. You're doing it by using something that looks like my logo. I'd like you to stop, please. Let's go to court. If you register your right, you get the, um, the you know, the, well, essentially customs officers to come in and, and kick down their door. Um, you gain additional rights and you can enforce it in the rest of the EU. Um, these are not time limited. You can keep renewing them and renewing that, and renewing them and renewing them. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry, forget about that last point. This comes from a different presentation about open hardware, and I forgot to delete it. Sorry about that. So that is the. Those are the varieties of intellectual property that I think are relevant here. Um, Orphan Works is interesting at the moment because, um, to digress slightly, there was a thing called the Hargreaves Review of Intellectual Property in this country, uh, which was spurred by. Um, uh, that guy from Google, whose name I always forget, um, coming and speaking in the East End of London and saying in an audience in which um, the Chancellor, I think, and David Cameron were present that we could never have started Google in this country because of the way that you handle um, what's called fair use in the States and what we call fair dealing here in this country. We can talk about the distinctions between those and so on. I've got a whole load of slides on them, but uh, it is quite in-depth stuff. But essentially what it means is that in the States you have a free-form right to use copyright material provided you meet a four-step test. Um, the test is, and I, I, we can go and look at what those steps are in a moment if you want, but basically it works in the way that you do what you think you're allowed to do with the argument in your pocket, and if at some point in the future somebody challenges you, you produce the argument and say, here is my fair use argument for the use of this material. Um, in this country we have something called fair dealing, which is a much more prescribed set of specific circumstances under which you can do things with other people's um, copyright material. Um, and so basically, if you think about it, one is a roll-your-own solution, the US solution, and ours is a kind of menu-based solution. And the guy from Google's point was, 
when we set up a company which was essentially going through copying people's web pages onto our server, processing them, producing, you know, using an algorithm and producing a data set from that, that would on its face be illegal in the UK, so we just wouldn't have been able to start. No one would have funded our project because we would be proposing to do something that was illegal. In the US, we could say there's a fair use argument for this. It's not compromising the commercial interests of the people whose web pages we're looking at. Far from it, we're directing traffic to them, um, so we think we can do it. Uh, as a result of that, there was a big um, review of intellectual property with the view of saying, should we have fair use in this country? And they decided, no, we shouldn't, um, for various reasons, largely because publishers don't like the idea of broadening the, um, the ability of people to reuse their material, and they're very good at lobbying. Uh, but another thing that was discussed was the fact that libraries have a really hard time with orphan works. Lots of people have a really hard time with orphan works. Orphan works being things which you're pretty sure are still protected by intellectual property rights, probably by copyright, but you don't know whose those rights are. So the default situation there is, you need a license to use them, you're pretty sure. It's, say it's a photograph of somebody who was born in the last 70 years, therefore it must have been taken in the last 70 years, therefore the photographer can't have died in the last 70 years, therefore it's almost, but it's definitely protected. But you don't know who to ask. That's an orphan work. Uh, and libraries are often in the position of owning works which people want to do things with, but where they don't know how to advise that person to seek permission, and they don't want to hand over the material to be used if they're not sure that it's being used legitimately. Um, so, as part of this review, it was raised that, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something about this? Um, and what was proposed, and what I think is going to happen, is that there's going to be essentially a, um, a body which is not an official body, but there's going to be uh, basically somebody who will ensure you against the problem of somebody, of what you call a revenant rights holder, which is a nice, uh, those of you who play Dungeons and Dragons, a revenant being a zombie, essentially. A zombie rights holder emerging from the grave and throttling you as a result of your use of their material. So basically, everyone who wants to use what they think is an orphan work pays a fee into the pot. You know, it's like, like in Monopoly, you stick the money on, um, uh, from fines on free parking. Um, and uh, should somebody emerge and say, actually, your use uh, infringes on my rights, then they would negotiate with the rights holder on your behalf and spend money in order to acquire it. You know, the, the theory being that in most cases there won't be a revenant rights holder, so you'll have a nice float of money in the, in the scheme. And in the interest of small government and the way that we like to push things outside government these days, they tried to encourage the publishing industry to run this for themselves. And it looks like they're going to do that in this country. So that is what will happen with orphan works, almost certainly, as a result of the Hargreaves Review. Um, there's all sorts of other stuff happening. So you were mentioning um, homages earlier. Um, we don't have a right in this country to produce parodies. Um, so to take a song, you know, this sort of thing Weird Al Yankovic does, take a song, use the tune but change the lyrics, um, whereas that's something which is established as, as doable within the United States, and that was one of the things that they're going to they're gonna, uh, make possible here. So there will be another blossoming of um, satire as there was in the 60s, I'm sure. But that means that in a podcast, you can have... A video podcast, you can have the image of the slides here, you can have the recording of what I say, um, you have my image and so on, and though there are layers of rights within those things. It's possible that I will own the slides because of the way the university statutes are, because uh, this gentleman and myself both work for IT services and therefore the university, the things I'm saying and the recording itself will belong to the university. Um, there is also a thing called the performance right, which I can't assign and which I need to make available to anyone who is making a recording of me. And indeed, I should have filled in your form, Pip, in order to do that, a form which we drafted during the Open Spires project. Um, but yes, so that's not something that they, the university can claim of mine, and that I, as a performer, if you can call it that, um, have to give permission to. And that was introduced to protect people like Cliff Richard, um, who was in a position of being a singer who generally didn't sing his own works, 
and therefore the, when the copyrights on them expired, he didn't have any particular, or rather when the, the copyright on the recording expired, he didn't have any way of making money out of them. And so it was decided for, that from then on, um, there should be an exclusive right that a performer owns in this country to say yay or nay to the release of their recordings and to the making of their recordings, and that therefore record companies need to pay Cliff Richard or whoever else to acquire. So that was a slight digression. I can't quite remember how we got there. But um, yes, you were talking about podcasts and layers of rights. So uh, in your example of recording this gentleman speaking, because the words are your intellectual creation and they're being recorded, that produces a copyright work. The, the, when you create an adaptation, when you create something which is a combination of a series of different copyright works, then you end up with something where the owners of those separate copyright works all have a say as to what happens with that work. And so, under those circumstances, you know, in a, I mean, a film is naturally a piece of multimedia. So, you know, you have music elements, you possibly have still image elements, you have moving video elements, um, you have the script. You know, it, it's in its nature a combination of different copyright works. Um, and all of the people who write those things, create those things, have a say in what happens to that material, unless, as a film company, you're really careful about making sure that you have all the clearances and all of the, uh, and, and, and generally, you know, the, the strategy you make is you make everyone an employee if you possibly can, because then by default you'll own what they create as work for hire in the US and here it's um, now, now, from here on in, the slides get rather odd in the sense that they are... I'm not sure if this is what we would... So here, this next section of slides is talking about what you're doing if you're publishing material, how you put people on notice that the material is copyrighted and essentially how you uh, attempt to prevent unauthorised reuse. Hands up if that's something you want to know about. Oh dear, sorry. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll quickly go through this. So essentially, um, the, the main point to make here is people, people often ask this question about copyright symbols and dates attached to pieces of work. Um, what do they mean? Is there some special legal function for a copyright symbol? Um, the answer is that there is in the US. It, 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 it speaks to when you registered the copyright. Um, it's not anything like that here. Here, really, it's just a convention which puts people on notice that you believe the material to be sufficiently substantial and original to be protected. And by putting your name and the date you created it, you're also saying, here is the institution which I believe ought to be, or the person who given credit for this, and ought to be contacted should you wish to exercise rights. And also, this was created in this particular year. So if you want to make an argument that this, the rights have expired, or you know, if, we're, if we're going ahead 69 years, you can know precisely whether the thing is actually, or 69 years from the death of the creator, you know whether the thing has expired or not. So that's the function of those things. Uh, I already mentioned this stuff about informal copyright registries. Uh, where are we? So what I should do, I think, given that we have a limited amount of time left, is push forward. So uh, who feels they understand Creative Commons? Okay, well, yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Okay, so I'm going to go to the slides about Creative Commons because that will cover... Here we've been talking generally about copyright-related issues, um, and as it's supposed to be about open content, I'd better get down to those slides. Uh, actually, let's quickly talk about free and open source software too because that's where this came from. So um, software is considered to be a literary work because it occurred long after all these laws had been written, and people looked at source code and said, yeah, that looks a bit like a poem, let's treat it that way. Um, I mean, it's essentially what happened. And it's not a great way of thinking about software in many ways, which is why you have all these arguments about software patterns, because actually the value of software is often in what it does, not how it reads. Um, in fact, always, pretty much. So, uh, software that you have the right to adapt and distribute, you need access to the source code for that. Source code is a, uh, the version of the software you need if you want to make changes. The version that you run on your computer generally is not what you want to be editing. You want to be editing the source code, which is a kind of precursor file. It's often available at minimal and no cost because of the way that the licensing works. Because I have the right to freely give a copy of the software to anyone I want to, even if I didn't create it, 
the tendency is to force the price down towards zero. doesn't mean that I can't attempt to sell copies, depending on the license. Some licenses permit that. But the fact is that because every one of my customers can distribute for free, that business model will not survive long, generally speaking. Um, and often it's maintained and developed by a mixed community. So that's the other thing, other point to make. that the, When we talk about open publishing and reuse, one of the um, nexuses, is that a word? One of the points of joining of two technologies and schools of thought which has been very effective is networked communities and open licensing because people are able to talk to each other globally and are able to distribute material to each other globally and because they have the right to do so because of open licensing you end up with what's called open development the ability for a particular resource to be developed by a large community of people who have an interest in it becoming better uh, and that in software particularly is a is a very very prevalent thing you, you have multi-billion dollar pieces of intellectual property like the Linux operating system which no one individual organization owns where it's, it's largely, well no, it, it's produced largely by people who are paid to produce it but they're not paid by people who own the entire thing and a lot of the people who work on it are in fact just volunteers. Um, it's not the same as freeware uh, but we won't go into that just now um, and we have this idea of copyleft which is the same as share alike. Um, what that means is that you can have that concept of openness that I mentioned on the first slide, but um, there is an additional restriction, which is mentioned indeed on that first slide, which says, if you do choose to make an adaptation of my work, you have to promise to make it available, your whole thing, including the stuff you've added, under this same license. And to get to the issue about philosophy, I guess that's where that comes in. There are two schools of thought on this matter, one of, them, one of which says, um, people are essentially selfish, and if you give them things for free, they will work to make them non-free and their own. Um, and therefore they need to be forced to keep things free and that's what copyleft and share alike does it says freedom is something that you need to not be free to lose um, the other school of thought says no actually people generally are collaborative um, we don't need these conditions in open licenses because people will see the benefit of collaborating and keeping what they add to a project open under the same license even if they don't have to because and there are various reasons for that particularly in software the main reason is if we all decide now, if we all go to our various corners of the earth after this meeting and decide to produce something through collaboration, um, if I decide to take that and make it my own, and you guys continue to cooperate on it, my version that I've taken over here, it's going to take me a lot of work to keep taking the stuff that you've added to your open version and add it to my closed one. There's just a, a very strong practical reason for me to keep cooperating, particularly in software, because taking changes from the community and putting them into my closed version is hard work. It's actually better for me to continue to cooperate and to try and market on the basis of other things like I know how to use this software well, pay me, pay me to install it for you, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's the philosophical underpinning of these things essentially to the extent you can call it philosophical. There are two schools of thought, one of which says you must be, you, you must be free to be free, the other one of which says you must be forced to be free. So, um, yeah, so I won't get into all of that, but yes, there is essentially within, and if you go to this meeting on Monday you will find that there is a big difference between saying free software and open source software, and the two camps hate each other. Um, essentially, one of them, the free software people believe that this is an ethical choice, and that there is uh, the reason that software needs to be free, and, it, and indeed if you extend that further into um, open content, that open content needs to be kept open with as many restraints as possible to closing it, um, because it is of societal value for things to be shared. And that essentially, if things were perfect, we wouldn't need intellectual property at all, is generally the extension of that argument. It's an unfortunate kludge we have to go through for now, but we're working towards a situation where ideas are not owned. 
Um, the open source people, on the other hand, say, yeah, can we just not talk about that? Can we just say that the thing I was talking about, that joining together of open licensing and networked communities, is a really good way of making stuff? It's a great way of making software. It's a great way of producing collaborative academic uh, resources. Um, so let's just talk about that. Let's just say cooperation is good, whether you're doing it for capitalistic reasons or, or whatever other reason. Uh, and that's why there is this strong, and so for our purposes, in the, what I work for, we say free and open source software, which is an ugly formulation, horrible to have to type all the time, I've got a macro, but still, it's not, but, but it means that we aren't picking an argument, um, except that in fact we are, they, it just means they both hate us. Um, and so in the final five minutes, I will get to what's probably supposed to have been the point of this talk, but I hope it's been useful to a certain extent. We are finishing at three, aren't we? Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, Creative Commons was created by, uh, at Stanford by um, Larry Lessig, who's now moved on to other things. Um, but at that point, uh, there was a lot of, uh, essentially what I was talking about, the fact that the internet produced a great deal more collaboration. It also produced a great deal more piracy of intellectual property, obviously a great deal more copying of material where, strictly speaking, that was not what you were supposed to be doing. Um, and so you ended up with situations like videos being taken down from the internet because they include people singing Happy Birthday, which is only now being challenged as an owned song. But up to then, because somebody, I can't believe it, I think Warner Chapel own the rights to a piano arrangement of it from 1920-something. They do assert rights over the singing of that song and videos which contain it. So, that, I mean, that, that's the kind of uh, poster boy uh, example of, of, of how bad that kind of uh, withdrawal of material from the intellectual commons can be. So the idea was to take the open source licenses uh, with their copyleft concept and produce something which you could apply across all copyright material. Um, and to do so in such a way as people who weren't lawyers and computers, as well as lawyers, could understand what was going on. Um, so you essentially have a menu of options that you can apply in your license. All of them say that you have to attribute the creator. And so all of the licenses, when you see their icons, will have that little dude in a circle. Um, so that one is not optional. Uh, you can specify that you don't want the work to be used commercially. So you say you can do what you like with it, but... Uh, and their definition of commercial here is primarily for, for financial gain, which is a difficult thing to, to police. Um, but the point there is to say then you can say, and often you'll find academics like that particular one, they will say, yes, I want my stuff to be uh, distributed as widely as possible, but I would feel a complete fool if somebody made themselves a millionaire on the back of this and I didn't. Um, for the purposes of the programmes in this country, the funding programmes which fund the creation of open educational resources, they really don't like this largely because it's really hard to work out whether a use is commercial or not. In this university, we're a charity. Most, most, all universities in this country are charities, as well as also having commercial arms. So is something that Oxford does with something a commercial use or not? We could argue it both ways, and therefore it's not a great condition. Um, you can specify that you don't want any derivatives. So you can say, by all means, pass it around, but it's got to stay as it is. Um, you can, however, include things within collections. So that thing we were talking about earlier of a collection being a larger encompassing copyright work, that is specifically allowed. But otherwise, the thing in itself has to retain its structure and integrity. Then this is what we were talking about earlier, share alike. You can specify that people can make adaptations, but if they do, then the adaptation has to be made available under the same license. Um, you'd think that would be true anyway, but the point here is to say that once you create a larger work, which includes some of my work, you have to think about the stuff you add as bearing responsibilities which you inherited from including my stuff. Um, so essentially you, you're agreeing that what you add to the work will also be available under the same license and that's the decision you have to make. Otherwise you might be free to include the material that was just under an attribution license and say, well the rest of this is all mine and uh, I, you know, I'm going to uh, say that you can't reuse it but I'm going to acknowledge that there are bits and pieces in there that, that belong to other people under Creative Commons licenses. 
So uh, the only six same combinations of those categories are those licenses, and they have these little license plates attached to them. Um, the cool thing about this stuff, um, for geeks at least, is that as well as being um, ways of indicating to human beings and lawyers that these things are um, licensed in this way, there is a metadata scheme available that you attach to documents which contain this material and which allows search engines to be able to, to present to you a list of results which are licensed in a specific way. Google will do that for you, Yahoo will do that for you, um, search.creativecommons.org um, allows you to query all those different targets. It's not perfect by any means, people misuse the metadata. Um, it's best where it's working on repositories of material like Flickr where um, Creative Commons licensing is built into the process of making the stuff available. Um, they regionalise the licences, uh, which possibly we'd have to get into now. Um, uh, but essentially it means that unlike open source licences, there are lots of variations of these licences and you choose the one which is specific to your jurisdiction. The aim being to make sure that it works in your jurisdiction. Arguably it was a bad choice, but there you go. Um, but a small piece of uh, tidbit is that the Wolfson, where you've been spending a lot of your time, was where the England and Wales ones were created. Um, Thank you so much for clarifying that.